in the 1960s, 1970s, Christian Reconstruction was a really bit of a cottage industry. It relied on photocopied newsletters, maybe duplicated cassette tapes with lectures on them. But today, in the age of the internet, in the age of Amazon Prime, you can go onto Amazon Prime mm. and listen to Christian Reconstructionist talk shows. Um, so, you know, th this movement has moved to a completely new level um, and it is permeating I think large sections of evangelicalism and one of the things I suggest in this book is that it might actually be marking out the direction of large sections of evangelicalism into the future. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link, or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is a book club episode presented by your brothers in Christ, Nick and Peter, from the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. After today's episode, check out our show notes for a link to order today's book. It's by Dr. Crawford Gribben, Survival and the Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest, published by Oxford University Press. Also, there's a link to our network of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. There's a bunch of other great podcasts out there you can listen to. There's also a link to the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Churches, the Napark Churches, as well as another link for our Baptist brothers and sisters to find a church near you. So again, today's book club episode, we are honored and thankful to have Dr. Crawford Gribben, and he'll be talking to us about his book, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. Yeah, so we're excited to have him on. He's the uh, professor of history at Queens University Belfast and is the author of a number of books on history of Puritanism and evangelicalism, including God's Irishman, Writing the Rapture, uh, and then a couple other books, John Owen and English Puritanism, but especially today's books. We are excited to have you on, Dr. Gribben. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. We both enjoyed your book. Yeah, and then chatted up for a little bit before the for recording. There's some there's some cool connections in the book and us and us personally. So yeah, we're excited to to crack into this. Yeah, me personally, um, I don't think there's too many books out there from uh, my hometown area. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I you know I grew up in Coeur d'Alene and I actually went to the University of Idaho in Moscow. So it's kind of like uh, your personal history. I wouldn't say personal, not direct or personal history, but yes, definitely uh, from that geographical area originally. So this was interesting. It was a, it was a good book to read and um, 
and uh, about this uh, unique movement in the area that I actually growing up, I, to be really honest, I had no idea about, <laughs> but it was, uh, that was a while ago. So, um, so in any, uh, before we jump into the first question, any uh, extra comments, Dr. Gribben? I just wonder if it made you feel nostalgic, Nick. It's a, a really beautiful part of the country you grew up in, Coeur d'Alene, beautiful lake, um, uh, the, the Palouse. I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? It what is. An what an area. Stunning. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's a unique area uh, just with beauty, a lot of lakes. Um, lot of Excellent fishing. Fishing, golfing. Uh, Absolutely. The first the first summer um, I was out there was the summer of 2015. You might remember the massive fires in eastern Washington. Uh, oh, that yeah. took place hundreds of acres, hun- well, hundreds of thousands of acres on fire. And it was it was quite amazing. We, we went out the first day we were there fishing on, is it Lake Penderosa? Is that is that the name of it? I'm thinking Ponderay or? Ponderay, that's it. Lake, Lake Ponderay. It goes up to Sandpoint, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But those amazing... Uh, those amazing uh, trout that that are in there, a really kind of unique trout species. Yeah, that was it was lovely. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Yep. the The camping, hunting, fishing, all that stuff is good up there. So, um, with the book, obviously, it's centered on the topic of Christian reconstruction. So, just to kind of start off with terms, people are thinking, what is the reconstruction movement. Yeah, what, I think naturally people think, is this like deconstruction, reconstruction? What does this actually mean? <laughs> yeah. So maybe just start with that term and, and it please define sure, it. Sure. Well, the Christian reconstruction movement is the movement that began probably in the 1960s uh, in California, as all good religious movements do. <laughs> yep. And uh, um, I suppose maybe about the mid 1960s, uh, a Presbyterian minister of Armenian background called R.G. Rushduni, um, was working as a, as a Presbyterian clergyman, but he was also doing some consultancy work for various political organizations, um, very much on the, the libertarian wing of, of conservatism. And uh, R.G. Rushduni, because of his Armenian background, was, was powerfully aware, I think, of the dangers of, of a hostile state towards a Christian minority. And of course, you're talking about the ethnicity, not the not the theology. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Armenian Peter, not not Armenian. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ar- Ar- Armenian. So you know, he, um, you know, his his own his own parents had escaped the Armenian genocide in the early part of the 20th century. Made it. Uh, his father studied at New College Edinburgh, became a Presbyterian minister. Rushdie family then moved across to the states, uh, and and R. J. Rushdie, uh, who becomes the principal theorist of Reconstruction was just determined that, that no similar fate should happen to Christians in the United States. And so he, he set about in the 1960s very deliberately, pretty much single-handedly thinking about major, major social questions. How should a country be run? I mean, that's, these are, you can't get more fundamental questions than these. And um, he, he was a very diligent student of the work of Cornelius Van Til, uh, he felt that Van Til did a very, very good job of working out where the problems were hmm. in society. Uh, Cornelius Van Til was a Dutch Reformed philosopher who thought a lot about how we know things. And and, and Rushdini really appreciated that. And, and in fact, Rushdini wrote one of the very earliest books that was ever published about Cornelius Van Til. But um, 
but 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 Rushdini became very concerned that that Cornelius Van Til was only was only critiquing the problem. He wasn't really proposing a solution. Hmm. So what Rushdini wanted to do was to take some of the insights of Cornelius's Cornelius Van Til's work, and then use those to think about questions like how should a country be organised, what should its legal code be, what should be a crime. And, you know, as he thought about that, he was he was reading his Bible. He was thinking about the Old Testament. He was thinking especially about the Mosaic Covenant and what role the Mosaic Covenant would continue to have into the present. Um, not really thinking about the Mosaic Covenant as something distinctive for the people of Israel in the Promised Land, but thinking about the Mosaic Covenant as something that could be applicable to all peoples everywhere. And then he would turn to New Testament passages like Romans 12 or first, Romans 13, I should say, or 1 Peter 2, where um, Paul and Peter respectively speak about what we should expect of governments. And he would read Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2, and he would recognize that, for example, a, a so-called secular government is described as God's servant to execute God's wrath against evildoers to reward the good, to punish the evil. So he would listen very carefully to the kind of language that Peter and Paul use in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. And he would ask himself questions like, well, what does it mean to describe the state as a servant of God? And what is the state then supposed to be administering? And, you know, for, for, for many, well, for, for several centuries up to that point, um, the American Constitution had had, and, and the American legal history had very much assumed that, um, not you know, natural light, um, the, the 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 common sense principles or, or or natural light, natural revelation is what you would want to turn to, to figure out what what, what should be right and what should be wrong, in a state. But Rushdoony wasn't really satisfied with that. You know, he 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 was quite clear that if the state is described as God's servant, the state must be responsible to. Um, administer justice on the basis of God's law. Where is that law? Well, he looked at the Mosaic Covenant, obviously the Ten Commandments, but also, you know, there were, there were other things in there, ceremonial laws, which by and large uh, he, he, he wanted to do away with, uh, as is common to, to, to Protestant Christians, well, to, to Christians generally. Um, um, but, 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 then, but then he looked at some of the, the laws relating to, you know, the administration of justice in, in, in Israel. And he began to think then that not only should the Mosaic Covenant tell us what, which sins should be crimes, because he knew that not all sins should be crimes. For example, Commandment 10 of the Ten Commandments is a sin, but it's not a crime. Covetous can never be a crime. So, But which sins should be crimes? But also he went beyond that to say, well, how should these crimes be punished? If the state is to administer God's justice, by what standard should it determine what justice is and, and what should that standard tell us um, is the way in which these crimes should be punished? And so Rushdini then makes this very, very simple claim that a state should be organised according to biblical norms. Mm. And he found those norms in the Mosaic Covenant. And from that insight, you know, a charmingly straightforward insight, um, he crafted, as I say, virtually single-handedly for many years, uh, a movement that became known as Christian Reconstruction. Mm. Now, most people who've written about Christian Reconstruction argue that it's dead and it died in the 1990s. Mm. Um, occasionally, books get published that are really kind of alarmist and say, well, it's like an American fascism. 
It's part of this vast right wing conspiracy, you know, that people like to talk about, but people find it really hard to, to tie up. Um, I suppose that's the benefit of a conspiracy theory. It just means that the people in the conspiracy hide it really, really well. Um, but um, um, but so most people who write about it say that it's basically dead and gone. But one of the things I want to do in this book is to say that far from being dead and gone, um, Christian Reconstruction today is bigger, broader, much more significant, much, much more influential than ever before. And that's not through kind of hardcore political philosophers like R.J. Rushduni. That's through people who are what we might call content creators, bloggers. Um, Peter, you mentioned exercise gurus mm -hmm. uh, when we were talking earlier on, novelists, um, you know, people who write homeschool curricula and so on and so on and so on. So in 1960s, 1970s, Christian Reconstruction was a really bit of a cottage industry. It relied on photocopied newsletters, maybe duplicated cassette tapes with lectures on them. But today, in the age of the internet, in the age of Amazon Prime, you can go onto Amazon Prime mm. and listen to Christian Reconstructionist talk shows. Um, so, you know, th this movement has moved to a completely new level um, and it is permeating. I think large sections of evangelicalism. And one of the things I suggest in this book is that it might actually be marking out the direction of large sections of evangelicalism into the future. Yeah, this, I appreciate how this book is very historically objective. You have like a, a journalistic approach to it. Um, just explain it how it was. Like you said, you, you, the, the, the early manifestations of it how the movement grew and then we're going to talk about where it is today um and this tees up this next question that at a large heart of the movement is the view on its eschatology which for the audience is just kind of a view of um how the biblical story is is currently rolling out towards the end times and so the movement they describe in the book they're they're definitely identify as post-millennialism so maybe we need to define that term but how did this view motivate the movement itself nick that's a really interesting question and it's it's a question i think that's really hard to answer it's not clear when you read the sources what came first hmm. rushduni's view of the law or rushduni's view of the end of time but Rushduni is distinct, and those who follow him, by and large, are distinct in the claims they make, both about the current role of the law of God, how should countries be organised, but also, secondarily, how does the story of the church end? So, uh, you know, when, when Rushduni started off his writing career in the 1960s, 1970s, of course, the prevailing view among evangelicals at large was, to use a technical term, dispensational premillennialism. Now, yeah. If that term is unfamiliar to listeners, they probably will be familiar with the ideas of the rapture, the tribulation, mm -hmm. uh, the rise of the Antichrist, the 1000 year reign of Christ on, uh, from Jerusalem, you know, the, the, the sort of premillennial advent. And, you know, in 1970, um, Hal Lindsey had brought out a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which was incredibly popular. It sold 19 million copies <laughs> in, in, in that decade and became, I think, the New York, uh, the New York Times, the best-selling non-fiction book on the New York Times list in the decade in which it was published. So, I mean, it was incredibly significant. And, um, you know, it really dramatizes this 
idea of the rapture, the tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, etc., etc., etc. So, I mean, that that was very much the spirit of the age within evangelicalism. But quietly, and funnily enough, even within Hal Lindsay's own backyard, in fact, not even in his backyard, yeah. but in, in the house he operated for Christian students in, 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 in UCLA, in, in, uh, which is in California, in case you guys don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, Hal Lindsay used to bring in guest speakers to speak to the 60, 70 students that were living in his uh, student house in UCLA. And one of those speakers in 1972, I think, or 73, was R.J. Rushdini. And Rushdini came in um, and, and he just basically began to dismantle Hal Lindsay's eschatology. Huh. Uh, so, you know, Hal Lindsay had said, well, you know, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until the rapture happens. And after the rapture happens, the Antichrist is going to, you know, rise to power very, very suddenly. Mark of the Beast will be imposed, terrible tribulation for seven years, um, decimation of the Jewish population that's left behind, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And Rashtuni said, all of this is completely bogus. None of this is real. And in fact, he said, you know, if, if you begin to look at the, the Bible, it's, it's farcical to believe that, that the mission of Christ will end in failure. Jesus Christ came to be the saviour of the world. So in Rashtuni's view, the future for the church was not one of increasing marginalization, but actually one of increasing power. He expected increasing numbers of conversions. He expected ultimately that the vast bulk of the population on the planet would be uh, a Christian, would be a member of a Christian church. Um, and, and you know, once he came to that conclusion, of course, it made the question about how states should be organized all the more urgent. In other words, what would happen to America if 51% or 60% or 75% of the population were Bible-believing Christians? How would they change the country? What laws would they want to pass? And so, you know, as his expectations grew for, the, for what he would call the success of the gospel in this age, uh, which he would measure by, among other things, by increasing numbers of conversions. Uh, you know, it, it made the question of the implications of that all the more urgent. You know, if, if, if Christians really are going to comprise the majority population of the United States, then what kinds of politicians are they going to vote for? What kind of state will that produce? What kind of culture? What kind of economy? What will happen to banking? What will happen to the police? What will happen to the prisons? And, you know, Rushdini began to make some really striking claims. You know, he would say, for example, that in, in this, in this um, future America that he anticipated, there would be no prisons. Um, there wouldn't need to be a police force. So, you know, people, people talk today about defunding the police. I think Rushdini would say, yeah, you know, let's have a conversation about that. But the reason why he, he's prepared to sort of you know, allow those conversations to continue is because he really does expect that the bulk of the American population will become regenerate Christians and baptized members of churches uh, and living faithfully individually in families and local communities and ultimately as a nation. Hmm. Hmm. That's good background. So we talked about what reconstructionism is, the motivating factors, their view on eschatology, so why the Pacific Northwest? Why, why that geographical area, which uh, for a lot of our viewers encompasses Washington State and Idaho, Montana, you know, Oregon, that kind of area. 
why why is that such a attractive area yeah that that that's i think that's a question that's that's hard to answer nick in 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 general terms and um, the reason we're talking about that area is because today in 2021 the biggest and most successful community of christian reconstructionists is based in that area mm. um and a, a large part of that is centered on a community in moscow idaho that's led by among others douglas wilson doug wilson who's a very prolific author blogger um, poet um he hosts uh, man rampant which is a kind of talk show on amazon prime and so on and he, you know he's written books with the likes of christopher hitchens you know he's, he's incredibly articulate very able um thoughtful intelligent uh, and also quite controversial theologian um so why have so many reconstructionists moved into that area i think that's a very interesting question um I mean, the, the area as a whole, you know, the North Idaho Panhandle as a whole has got a long history of alternative communities. We were talking before the show about the neo-Nazi community in Hayden Lake that shut down in the 1990s. And, you know, you can go back further beyond that to lots of utopian communities that get set up in that area, most of them extremely transient. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm not comparing the Moscow-Idaho community to any of those groups. Uh, it's distinct from them, obviously, in its openness to society, obviously in its Christian commitments and so on and so on. But the, 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 the Moscow Idaho community is, I think, by far the most successful um, community of, of any that I know um, that can be described loosely as Christian reconstruction uh, in orientation. And, and its origins, I think, go back to the 1970s, but it didn't begin as a Christian reconstructionist community. Back in the 1970s, Doug Wilson's dad, Jim Wilson, who I think, if I remember correctly, at that point was running a, a network of evangelistic bookshops, was looking for places to, to cite these evangelistic bookshops. And, I mean, Jim, Jim Wilson, who had a background in the American military, um, brought some of that knowledge about um, strategy and so on into even such a prosaic decision as where should I open my next bookshop? And, uh, he, I mean, he's, he's written extensively about this himself. Jim Wilson has... Um, a book called Principles of War, where he, where he talks about the need to make our, our mission targets, to use that kind of military language, both strategic and, and achievable. So uh, a big city is strategic. New York is strategic. Chicago is strategic, but it's not achievable. A small town is achievable, but it's not necessarily strategic. But Moscow, the Moscow-Pullman area, was both strategic and achievable. It was small, only about 20,000 permanent residents or so in, in Moscow, Idaho. But it was strategic because it was the home of, obviously, University of Idaho, Moscow, where, Nick, yeah, you were talking about earlier on, but also Pullman, just a couple, what, five, six, seven miles away um, on the other side of the state border, is also the home of um, Washington State University. So two major university campuses um, accessible from a town of around 20,000 people. So... That was the decision that Jim Wilson took to locate his family and his ministry in that area. And from that ministry, conversions began, um, a church began to be formed. It was very um, generally evangelical um, in that period. Um, it wasn't confessional. It was conservative and so on, but it wasn't confessional. Um, Doug Wilson writes in some of his uh, material about his background where he's very much open to dispensationalism, open to charismatic spirituality. But gradually over the course of the 1980s, it moved in a much more confessional direction much more calvinistic direction 
And um, largely that's because Doug began reading books by Banner of Truth and then circulating these. Um, you know, his personality is, is such that he is a kind of a, um, was it a type A personality? Is that the expression that you use? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. a type A personality, you know, he, he's a natural leader of people, an influencer of people. And that's what began to happen. And, and so this little nucleus of people then began to gather uh, around him in that church as that church moved towards a more, quote unquote, uh, Calvinistic um, uh, view of theology. But as, as that little group became excited by these new theological ideas, they began to write about them. They produced a, a magazine called Credenda Agenda. That magazine grew. I mean, it, it was a, a, you know, a, 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 a very successful magazine because it combined a very definite set, a very distinctive set of theological commitments with a, a kind of a, a witty, satirical repartee. Um, crucially, the magazine was circulated for free but by the end of the 1990s, it was circulating in up to 22,000 copies per issue, which they were distributing around the world at no cost to the reader. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would love to know how that was financed. That, that's like yeah. an extraordinary project, a really extraordinary project. And as that began to circulate and as they began to take chapters out of those magazines to pull them together into little books, for example, about marriage or family life or raising children or infant baptism or um, a what they might call a preacher's view of, 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 of revelation. Uh, you know, they, they, they used the magazine articles to create books. They began to print their books. They set up their own publisher. They began to print their own books. And they really then became to voice, came to voice a very, very distinctive view of um, Christian faith um, in, in a Calvinistic inflection, which, which reflected some of their own perhaps idiosyncratic views of some central claims, including justification, perhaps including baptism. Um, but all, I, I don't discuss the theology of this in the book. Um, I'm quite happy to leave that to people who know much more about it than I do. But, but I think, but to go to your question, why, why the Pacific Northwest, Nick? I think because of that decision by Jim Wilson back in the 70s to find a strategic and achievable location for an evangelistic bookshop and then to do evangelism and to see people converted, to mm. see a little church grow, to see that church over time take on a definite Calvinistic position, albeit with nuances, qualifications, perhaps some idiosync- idiosyncrasies. Uh, and then as, as these ideas were promoted and promoted, more and more people came to identify with these ideas and eventually to be persuaded by the critique of American modernity that these publications represented to decide that actually they'd be happier moving from Minneapolis, Florida, um, the Caribbean, France, England, to Moscow, Idaho, where they could be part of this community. And it has worked incredibly well. Got 2,000 people, 10% of the local population, um, a, a very successful classical Christian school, a liberal arts college that brings students in from all over the world. Many of them meet life partners. They get married, they stay, they can take jobs in some of the major companies that are being run by the 2,000 people in the Moscow Idaho community that are part of um, this this group. And, you know, it's a virtuous cycle uh, and it will grow. And I think it's going to grow and grow and grow. You know, it's it's quite an extraordinary thing to see. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's some insight that we didn't come into the to the book with. And so you've you've kind of already dropped the names. We're, we're not trying to do a hit list of reconstructionists and all oh, these are the bad guys, but just so people are understanding kind of the names and who's associated with this and why they're associated. So can you describe 
um, kind of how this movement developed around some of these key leaders. So you talked about Rashtuni. You also talked about Gary North, Doug Wilson. And I think there's a couple others that were kind of instrumental in this movement too. That's right. But I, I think, I think Peter, those are the three big names. So RJ Rushduni is very much the grandfather of the, of the movement. And his influence um, is still being disseminated through an institution called the uh, Chalcedon. Um, so you can find that information at chalcedon.edu. Um, then Gary North, who is actually RJ Rushduni's son-in-law, and, and, and Gary North um, is also an extremely prolific author, uh, UCLA PhD. UCLA is in California. Don't know if I mentioned that already. So he's, you know, he, Gary North is an incredibly smart guy. You know, he's got a PhD in economic history. He writes fluently. Um, he likes, you know, extremely intelligently, often very wittily uh, on a huge range of issues. Uh, and and he, he doesn't write so much now about about reconstruction issues in a, in a kind of a very heavy way. But his his life project has been what he calls an economic commentary in the Bible, and so he you know he has completed commentaries in almost every biblical book, thinking about their teaching in economics. Uh, huh. I mean, if you I mean, you could pick up his commentary on Leviticus, for example, which <laughs> you might think says very much about economics, but you know he's he's able to show that you know the way he reads the text, there are all these kind of economic themes running through it. Huh. So that that's R.J. Rushdie's son-in-law. There is also um, there is also Joel McDermott. Now, this is in some ways this is a tale of sons-in-law. So R.J. Rushdie, his son-in-law is, is Gary North. Gary North's son-in-law is Joel McDermott, and Joel mm. McDermott was for a while in charge of American Vision, which is a, another kind of reconstructionist movement. Now, I think maybe about a year or eighteen months ago, he stepped down from that position. He continues to write and speak on reconstructionist-related issues. Um, he wrote a book, uh, an influential book, a number of years ago called How to Restore America One County at a Time. Mm. And in some ways, that's if, if anyone is looking for a way into classical reconstruction ideas, Joel McDermott's book, Restoring America One County at a Time, is a very good way to get the big ideas there about banking, about the military, about family life, about debt, uh, you know, all, all of those kinds of, of issues uh, that mm. they deal with. So those are... Reconstructionists 1.0, right? And then you've also got these other Reconstructionists who who maybe are less happy to use the name, maybe want to use the name with qualifications. And among those, I think the most prominent is Doug, Doug Wilson, Douglas Wilson in Moscow, Idaho. Um, when I spoke to Doug Wilson about this, he, he said that he was happier being described as a Reconstructionist 0.5. <laughs> uh, than as a reconstruction as 1.0 or 2.0. And I, I get what he means because in, in, in Doug Wilson's view, the, the, the responsibility of the church goes much, much further than what the first generation of reconstructionists believed. The first generation oh. of reconstructionists or the reconstructionist 1.0 crowd, so Rushduni, Gary North, uh, Joel McDermott, they didn't have a massive influence or they didn't have a massive ambition to reform culture. So they would talk a lot about politics, about law, about economics and so on, uh, you know, banking, military, prisons, all of those kinds of issues. They didn't really talk that much about, about culture, but the Moscow-Idaho people talk a lot about culture. And I think one of the reasons they do that is because they often claim that politics comes downstream from culture. So in, in a way, there's no point really trying to engage in, in political interventions when you're not dealing with the root of the the, the 
um, the source of the problem. The source of the problem is a cultural problem rather than a political problem. And so one of the things that the Moscow Christians have wanted to do is to really create a Christian culture, to, to think about what does Christianity mean for the writing of fiction? What does Christianity mean for the production of art? What does Christianity mean for how we perform and appreciate music? And so on and so on and so on. And a lot of these things on their own don't seem to be terribly consequential. But taken together, um, taken together, that community has got authors who've published with Penguin, Simon Schuster, Random House, and it's extraordinary, Peter, because this is a group of 2,000 people. But this group of 2,000 people that supports um, a, a classical Christian school, a liberal arts college, a music conservatory, and a whole host of other things besides, is, is really driven by the activity of a handful of families that are creative, entrepreneurial, committed, sacrificial to their, to their ideas. Mm. And, you know, it, it's, there's a, my, my sense of it was that there is a small number of people who are doing a huge amount of work to hold this group together, but also their ambition goes much beyond this group. Their ambition really is to see America develop a genuinely Christian culture. Mm. And sometimes that's done really, really explicitly, you know, through really, really overtly um, Christian and inverted comma things. But sometimes it's done really, really um, carefully, cautiously and subtly, mm. as in the fiction of... Uh, Doug Wilson's son, N.D. Wilson, or uh, Nate Wilson, who's published um, things like um, uh, children's novels that come out with Random House, which um, may not mention the name of God at all, um, but are built very much on a, a kind of Christian myth. The terms, the, the plot structure is very much the plot structure of redemption, or perhaps it's a plot structure based around questions about the intermediate state and so on and so on. To the alert reader, you can work out exactly what he's doing. Um, but he's, if you like, building a scaffold. It's almost like pre-evangelism, building a scaffold for other ideas. But Andy uh, Wilson's probably most successful product is a character called Hello Ninja. Mm. And Hello Ninja is a widely circulating, incredibly widely circulating children's book uh, that now has become the basis for a series on Netflix. So Hello Ninja has got nothing overtly to do, I think, with Christianity. But it's a way that this, it's a way that this community, um, I think, is shaping um, um, a, a, wider, a wider culture that's not necessarily an evangelical culture. I think their goals go much beyond that. Hmm. Yeah, and you've, you've briefly touched on this previously, so kind of the influence of Reformed theology. And so I think some of our listeners not like confused but like oh so are reform reconstructionists or reconstructionist reform so how how does that relationship work between the reform theological principles and ideas some of the stuff that we would confess but we wouldn't call ourselves reconstructionists but they would so how how, how does that interplay work yeah, it's a great question peter um and you're at westminster california so you've got a very clear idea of what reform is meant to mean <laughs> uh, and, and, and and you'll know that you'll know that scott clark um my, my friend Scott Clark and, and I and some others yeah. produced a book debating this issue. What yep. does reform mean? So, so, so Scott, Scott would tell us that reformed has a settled meaning. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person on the other side of that discussion that says, well, really? Um, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I, I don't, you know, respecting your position there, I don't want to get you in trouble with your class instructor. So I'll be really careful what <laughs> I say. Uh, go for it. Yeah. 
in, in case any little birds report this to our Scott <laughs> yeah. Clark. He listens to um, our show, I know that. Well, he's not going to listen to this bit, I promise you. So, <laughs> Just skip um, right so, past. Yeah, skip right past. So, get, get, uh, yeah, fast forward one minute. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll let you know, Dr. Clark, right here, skip past it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a great question. How does Reconstructionism relate to Reformed history? Now, if you ask a Reconstructionist, they would say this is the purest form of Reformed history. And, you know, you've got to admit, historically speaking, that they have a point because mm-hmm. the Reformed Church is not in America, but in Europe. The Reformed churches do have a view that the state is responsible to support an established church. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at the original version of the Westminster Confession, not the American version, but the original um, version of the Westminster Confession, the first several versions of the Westminster Confession in the UK, and Scotland um, especially, um, you will find that they do have very, very high expectations for what the state is meant to do. So, you know, when it speaks about the, the state, um, you know, if you, look, if you look back at the earliest editions of Westminster, when it speaks about the state having a responsibility to guard, protect, pure doctrine and so on, um, it even gives the state the, the ability to convene um, what we might call councils or, or general assemblies um, of, of the church. Now, denominations like the Reformed Presbyterians or the Covenanters um, are very much in that lineage. Yeah but they would not call themselves Reconstructionists. Hmm. Now, they, they are theonomic, and so that's another big word. What does that mean? It means they, they also believe in God's law as having some kind of civil sanction, but they point to the general equity claim. This is probably mind-boggling for some people, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 the Westminster Confession says that the judicial portion of the Mosaic Law is only binding on nation states now in terms of general equity. So there's a huge debate among various kinds of reformed and reconstructionist writers about what general equity means. So the reformed Presbyterians would come along and say, yes, we accept that God's law is still binding on nation states today insofar as the general equity of the moral part of the law still obtains. Reconstructionists would want to say, yes, but let's go a little bit further and let's look at the judicial portion of the Mosaic law because that also obtains today so that i think is is the big debate between these groups reconstructionists wanting to say the gen not just the general or they want to say the general equity of the the moral law is found in the judicial law but groups like the um group theonomist in inverted commas theonomist groups like the reformed presbyterians the covenanters want to say yes nation states are obliged to to attend to god's law but only insofar as the moral equity of the the ten commandments that the the moral portion of the mosaic law uh, is still binding and then so so that's two groups so you've got the reconstructions at one extreme you've got groups like the reformed presbyterians or the covenanters as they're sometimes known as a kind of a middle body Mm. and then on the other side you've got um, the so-called 2K, two-kingdom position, mm-hmm. which which argues for a very, very sharp distinction um, between um, the responsibilities of church and state mm-hmm. and... Um, that, sorry, we just missed uh, what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> really bad connection. So, but 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 the two K the two K bit, which obviously is is the position that's often taught at Westminster, California, yeah. argues for a separation between uh, these two powers with different kinds of responsibilities. Yeah. So that the church is always governed by the Bible, but the state looks to general revelation, natural revelation, um, yeah. and way of doing it. So all of these groups are are 
would see themselves, I think, as confessing essential, essentially the same doctrines. There's, there's been a lot of debates and discussions about the way in which some Reconstructionists, including um, Douglas Wilson uh, and those influenced by him, think about issues like baptism, justification, and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not referring to that. That's a separate conversation, mm-hmm. uh, one that I'm not really equipped to engage with. But insofar as, insofar as thinking about the state, all of these groups will accept that in Romans 13 terms, 1 Peter 2 terms, the state is God's servant to exercise wrath against evildoers, to reward the good, et cetera, et cetera. But they all see that responsibility coming from a different place. Gotcha. Uh, and that's why they can end up with very different views of um, the American Constitution, for example, or even of democracy. Hmm. So you speak to your typical Westminster, California prof, if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. I would I would put money on it that, that most of them are happy. Most of them are happy with democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you, you speak to your typical Reconstructionist, um, they might see democracy as a means to an end, mm. but they are often quite worried about democracy. And in fact, Rushduni's comments about democracy were, were searing. Mm. I think somebody calls it a loser's creed. So, you know, all of these groups might say they're confessing the same faith, and maybe they are, but the way they, the way they apply that to modern day society is fundamentally different. Mm. That's helpful. Different. Hmm. Yeah, and talking about this book's layout, structure, how it moves from the beginning to the book to the end, you have a helpful linear and loosely chronological way of going about it so you can walk through history with you. You kind of hold our hand through the beginning of this movement um, and, and up to current times and where they expect it to go. Uh, you, so you start off the book more loosely like on migration um, then you move to the terms and, uh, thoughts about eschatology, which we touched on. Then you move to government, which we just talked about just now, then education and media. So I think those last two, we kind of have left to talk about as well. So can you give a brief recap to each of those? Like you can keep it super simple and conclusion for each of why these were the focuses of the framework of the book. Yes, yeah, that's a great question. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I, I wish I had a really robust intellectual response to that, but I really don't. I really don't. So, um, I mean, the background to this book came when my good friend, Scott Spurlock, who teaches at Glasgow University, he's head of the religion department at Glasgow University, and I, in our previous jobs, we worked in Dublin. And, you know, we used to go out, as people do, go out for coffee, have a laugh, bit of a chat. Uh, Scott also, Nick, comes from Coeur d'Alene. Uh, so, so I mean, basically, we just thought, let's let, let, let's go on a road trip around America, but let's not pay for it ourselves. How do we do this? So, you know, you've got to get some kind of, you know, uh, academic project to, 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 so you can give somebody else your receipts. So, uh, so you know, we did it. We just basically sketched this out in the back of a of a napkin. What what might this kind of project look like? And and that was it. So, I mean, you're right, Nick. There's those five big themes: migration, eschatology, government, media, and um, education, isn't it? Maybe not quite in that order. But I mean, there was other things we could have talked about. We could have talked about patriarchy, gender roles. Um, I know some of the people who've, who've looked at the book are a bit disappointed. It doesn't say more about some of the most controversial things that are associated with this group or, or, or with this movement generally. Um, uh, we've, 
in this conversation, you know, we've talked a little bit about the way in which the Napark churches have responded to um, some of the claims about justification, for example, that have been promoted by some of these communities. I mean, I, I just don't go into that, partly because I don't really feel um, equipped to do that, um, partly because other people have already written about it at length. So I, I, tried, to, I tried to find things that maybe weren't as obvious. Um, and, and for me, I think what made this project interesting was, was the moment in which the discussion about reconstruction and, and the history of reconstructionism overlapped with a kind of prepper slash survivalist movement that was also pushing people into this area. And while these two, these two pushes were independent of each other, they both had more or less the same effect. Uh, and in fact, um, the major survivalist blog, I think in the States at the moment, survivalblog.com, is run by a man called James Wesley Rawls, um, who obviously appreciates Doug Wilson because he includes Doug Wilson's church in some of the novels that he writes um, about, about survivalists. So, you know, for me, that was a really exciting moment. I've been following the, the, the Moscow Idaho group since the mid-1990s, just out of sheer curiosity, um, seeing what was going on. But when I saw that they had begun to have a status in what we might almost call paramilitary survivalist cultures. That really got my attention. Now, the Moscow people are not are not survivalists. You know, I didn't meet I, I met a tiny number of people among them who could be described as survivalists, but but they were not at all typical of, of the group as a whole. Um, so so then it, it was that combination of things then that made me think. Well, you know, wh where do these two? If these were two circles where do they cross over in this kind of imaginary Venn diagram? And it was those themes like, you know, migration, government, and so on. So migration, um, what, what makes this important, I think, is that a, an unknown number of people over the last 30 years or so have moved often from California, but actually globally into North Idaho, where they've really done a lot to push up house prices. Um, it's, the region's got some of the fastest house prices uh, growth now in the United States. Hmm. Certainly did in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you ask yourself the question, well, why? You know, obviously, Idaho is a beautiful area, but it's quite remote. And, and some of the places where the house prices are really growing are quite far away from the big resort towns like Coeur d'Alene or the big university towns like Moscow. Um, and, you know, it can be, you know, you can go right the way up to the Canadian border to Bonner's Ferry, ferry area. Uh, you know, where the, the, the Randy Weaver episode happened in 1992. I, and, and it's, I mean, it's as remote as you can possibly be, mm -hmm. surrounded by nothing but trees and bears. <laughs> and property is still incredibly expensive. <laughs> so who's moving there and why? Well, you know, you can start looking at some um, real estate websites in the area and look at the properties they're selling. And they're selling properties on the basis of their defensibility. Hmm. <laughs> Um, or the or you know the, the kind of natural resources that they might have a spring, um, or or some other feature that is somehow related to surviving some very 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 bad thing that might happen, and so you know thousands of people are moving to this area. The Economist ran a story a couple of years ago in its Christmas issue talking about exactly this. Huh. The Washington Post has been running stories about it talking about exactly this. The local press has been doing the same. So a lot of different media outlets had recognized some kind of migration was happening, but they didn't know what it meant. Hmm. And they certainly didn't know what it meant to local people. And, you know, spoke to quite a number of local people 
a lot of them really horrified by what this migration movement represented. Um, it's one thing for a church to say, we want to make Moscow a Christian town, but what about the large number of non-Christian people in that town who don't want to live in a Christian town? Mm. How do they feel about this? Um, and setting aside the irony that the only the only bar that was open to students was a bar that was run by uh, a member of this church. You know, a, a lot a lot of the people in the in the sort of University of Moscow, Wazoo, Washington State University community couldn't really see anything good about this about about this religious community, this church community, uh, at all. So anyway, that's a really rambling answer. But migration is crucial. Um, education obviously is crucial because how do you, it's not only about bringing people into this area, right? Obviously that, that, that creates a kind of a center of, of influence or power, or, you know, think of it however you wish, but they also want to, the, the, their goal is not really to bring people into Moscow. Moscow's got kind of a natural growth limit probably, yeah. but their goal, their goal is to see Christian families all over the country take up some of the principal themes that they've been trying to promote over the last 20, 25, 30 years. And they're doing that really, really well. Mm. Um, how do we know that? Well, we know that because they've got an incredibly successful um, classical Christian school. That's the, that was the one of the earliest schools, I think, in an association of classical Christian schools that now has an influence over, I don't know, 10,000 students, something like that. Mm. But also, in addition to that, they set up a publisher. In addition to the books about marriage and theology and so on that I mentioned earlier on, this publishing house publishes a huge number of resources for um, Christian schools, for um, Christian home educators. And, you know, they, they are really pushing out their message through that as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier on that Doug Wilson has written a book with Christopher Hitchens. I mean, this is the kind of credibility that this group has in cultures that are not normally positive, let's say, towards the kind of conservative Protestantism that they represent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the education part of this project and the media part of this project, I think, work very effectively together to package and communicate um, some of the, the group's biggest ideas. And I think you know, all of this pales in comparison with um, the, the ability of this group now to be able to promote its message explicitly on Amazon Prime talk shows. Mm. And, and that that has got to be a major, major step forward. It's one thing to be able to sell your books, to get people, yeah. but to do that, you've got to get people to come to your website. People have to do quite a lot of stuff to it get to your product. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys are in marketing, you know this. But if you have a product on the one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, popular culture producers, disseminators, distributors, in the United States, i.e. Amazon Prime, you're, you have just begun to address a, an audience bigger than anything you could ever have done before. And actually, what's really interesting about the story is that we know one of the most surprising members of this audience is President Donald Trump. Hmm. Because uh, back in December, when the Moscow-Idaho church had a COVID-busting hymn sing um, on the plaza in front of the Moscow-Idaho um, uh, town hall or county house, whatever it's called. Um, and, and when the local police came to arrest some of the people who were there in defiance of local COVID regulations mm -hmm. to arrest them and take them away, this was videoed, put up in social media. And one of the people who retweeted uh, the image of Moscow, Idaho policemen taking away Moscow, Idaho Christians from a hymn sing mm -hmm. was President Donald Trump. I remember that. 
Yeah. Oh. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah. And I, I'm sure I'm going to have friends and family listening to this <laughs> that are from that area. So it's good that you do um, objectively kind of lay things out and that it just so the audience understands the, the, the area and on a positive note, not really tied to this movement specifically, but does embrace diversity. Um, they do like people from all different areas and cultures to come to the area. So um, that could be maybe a misconception, especially from maybe a, uh, a long time ago past, but the area is definitely open to diversity and different peoples and, and cultures. But the, what you even explain this in the book too, that like, because of that movement, not just, or because of the attractive and appealness of the area to be more of a survivalist, um, not in a general term, not just specifically that the reconstruction is built from off of, because they're like, this is a good place to have this movement, but because of a general understanding of people moving to that area from all areas of the world for that idea. Um, so, cause I remember growing up in the area is like, it's always been growing. There's always been people moving there. Diversity is growing, which is great. We love diversity. So don't want people to think that we're against that. Um, but that area, I think, um, embraces the appeal of separating oneself from the rest of society from whatever you came from to the survivalist area. Hmm. Yeah, and you've already kind of touched on this, so maybe more just a, a summary thing. So um, we talked about this before the show. So the Reconstructionist Movement, I mean, I've heard from a lot of different Christians where like they just produce like really aesthetically pleasing things. Um, the books are well written, and I think not. I, I don't think it's necessarily from their point of view that they're trying to do this, but kind of broad evangelicalism movies that I'm sure people have seen, like Facing the Giants, is a, is a big one um, that churches produce. They're just like they're not good. Versus, I think Moscow, Idaho, and, and these churches, like they produce like culturally appealing things. Um, and is it? Maybe in your opinion, just kind of the interviews, is that is that a very specific thing where they want to produce not just Christian stuff, but like actually good pieces of work, good pieces of literature, good pieces of movie? Is that is that like an explicit purpose of theirs? And Because it seems different than what I usually see. It's like, oh, no, as long as we get the message out there, and it doesn't really meet like matter how the medium is done or how how pleasing is that is that is that kind of what you saw? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Peter. I mean, I, th I think that's right. I think that is right. That I mean, if, if you go back into some of the older issues of Credenda Agenda, um, they can be pretty scathing of evangelical culture. You know, it's yeah. kind of lowbrow. Um, you know, it's, it's lowbrow. It's not very ambitious. Uh, as long as it's as long as it's got Jesus on it, it doesn't matter what junk yeah. it actually <laughs> yeah. equates to. You know, so it's like when you go into you know your typical evangelical bookshops, just full of holy hardware. You know, it's it's, it's got like <laughs> bouncy balls with Jesus' name on it, as if he can sanctify plastic. And and I mean that, that I think that that really is what triggered a lot of the work in in Moscow, Idaho in the nineteen nineties. They respond yeah. to that very very negatively, um, and and you know I think respond to that negatively because they recognize that in some respects that is taking God's name in vain. Hmm. You know, you're attaching a divine name or, or, you know, some part of gospel proclamation to substandard cultural products. Hmm. Why would you do that? And so, you know, uh, 
you, you walk into your typical evangelical bookshop and it's full of, you know, maybe testimony books or prophecy books or books about how to raise good children or whatever. You walk into the Canon Press bookstore in Moscow, Idaho, the Canon Press warehouse in Moscow, Idaho, and it's got like handbooks on how to learn Anglo-Saxon hmm. <laughs> uh, or, or long poems, um, you know, and, and it's it's a different world. And I mean, the, the very fact that the, 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 the big controversy over the last couple of years in Moscow in relation to this community, the big controversy has been about zoning for a new music conservatory that they want to produce. So, I mean, this is, I think this is really kind of stunning that if you, if you go along to the, the Christchurch congregation, you know, you'll get handed a little um, order of service, paper order of service, and at the bottom of it, it'll say something like, you know, our goal is to make Moscow a Christian town, right? And so immediately think, right, they're going to be in street corners. They're, they're going to be protesting. They're going to be giving out leaflets, doing door-to-door work. They're going to be very aggressive, very in your face. What are they doing? They open a music conservatory. So what's the connection between making Moscow a Christian town and opening a music conservatory? And it's, it's about, I think, what evangelism means for them. Of course, they believe in gospel proclamation. Um, they do a lot of that. But for them, as I said before, their goal is total. It's a totalizing goal. And it is about looking at how an entire culture can be sanctified. So a Christian and a non-Christian won't play the violin in the same way. They may both pass the same exams, play the same pieces, but they won't play the violin in the same way. And you ask them why, and that's when they begin to unpack the whole idea of ends, means, the glory of God, and um, how a Christian culture is created. Yeah, that was just an interesting part of the book for me. And, and I've seen their websites, I've seen their classical school, I've looked at their their college, and um, I mean, they're distinctive in their, their educational output, where they are classical, where it is distinctive from, I think, broader evangelical culture. As long as you put Jesus on a math problem, then you're good. Yeah. Versus seeing this holistic sense um, and they're, I mean, you can not hate on them, but you can think about what their theology that you want, but they're brilliant people. I mean, they're well-educated, they know what they're doing, and it makes them super influential because they are, I mean, they're very, very, very smart, well-educated, and they can, they can, they can um, clarify and be distinctive about what they believe in a way that's, I think, deeper than most Christians can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, true. Which is a challenge for everyone else, Peter, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah, it's like, so, yeah, so it's a hard game, yeah. Yeah, so so I mean, if 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 other people look at this and feel a little bit alarmed by it, perhaps because of specific doctrinal issues, well, you know, learn learn from this, yeah, and try and do something better. Yeah, yeah, I think it was it was both a um, an eye opening look at the Pacific Northwest, but also kind of a introspective look at yourself. How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to be a distinctive Christian in that sense, where I do know the culture well enough to where I can critique it. I, I have this educational background. I, I can talk to people who don't necessarily agree with the stuff because they respect me for kind of the stuff that I can produce or whatever it may be. I, I, that was, that was a, an interesting part of the book. Yeah, cool. This was a very good conversation and very interesting book and uh, ed- edifying on the, on the history of the movement and where it's at. But, do you have any closing remarks of where you think, where you anticipate this going in the future? That's a great question, Nick. And in some ways, I think it bounces off what Peter just said as well, doesn't it? 
Um, because if 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 this group continues to grow in influence, so moving from um, moving from desktop published magazines to properly bound books to homeschool curricula to really ambitious co-authorship projects with Christopher Hitchens, etc., to Amazon Prime sponsorship and dissemination of their ideas, I think I think this is the group that will be setting an agenda. So to go to Peter's point, what if what if nobody else responds to this by saying we need to do better too? What if everyone else just keeps doing what they're doing? Um, you know, I, I think that in, in a kind of a solid state market like that, these ideas will grow from one degree of influence to another. Mm. Um, if, if other Christian groups say there's things we can learn from here and maybe do better, then I think, um, you know, I, I think that's, I think that would be a very encouraging um, thing to happen. Um, so, you know, obviously it's impossible to be, well, I'm not a post-millennialist, so so I will say it's it's, it's impossible to be utterly optimistic uh, <laughs> about 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 these things. But you know, just in terms of you know, just thinking about how things are likely to to, to happen, yeah. Um, if if everything else stays the same, I think this group will grow in influence and grow in influence. Um, the quest, I think there are big questions about whether they can replicate what they have done in Moscow anywhere else. Mm. I think there are big big questions about whether the work in Moscow who depends upon a tiny number of people. And it's not clear to me what would happen if those tiny number of people weren't there anymore. Hmm. So I think that, that there may be some structural structural issues that the group in Moscow might want to think about, but I'm sure they are thinking about them. Um, so if, if they can replicate this model elsewhere, hmm. I think we might be looking at the future of evangelical, conservative evangelical um, Protestant religion hmm. in, a, in a world in which those believers are increasingly marginal. So if, if the mainstream culture in the United States continues in the direction it's going, and if evangelicals are pushed further and further and further to the margins, more and more of them, I think, are going to make the completely obvious decision that it's better, safer, and happier to live in a group of like-minded people than to try and live as a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. I think that's... Ex ex exactly to be expected. Mm -hmm. And if that case is, there will be more and more groups emerging like this. You can think about it as the regionalization of morality. America is being balkanized. I mean, for me as an outsider, that seems to be very, very obvious. There are red states and blue states. Within individual states are red and blue counties. They don't often change. Uh, and in fact, there's an intensification of what we saw in the last election that the bluer states are bluer, the redder states are redder. There's a real intensification of political commitments. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but of course, it's not just in the realm of politics, it's in the realm of uh, morality, of law, of, um, of you know, rights, not just Second Amendment rights, but all kinds of constitutional guarantees that in some places are being absolutely defended and other places are being you know, really challenged. So I think people are just going to do the obvious thing. Where, where is the best... They'll ask themselves the question of where is the best place to bring up my children? And, you know, I, I don't think that's a super challenging question mm -hmm. to answer. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know people necessarily who move into Moscow, but I do know Christians who have moved from California within the last six months. Yeah. Uh, moving to Dallas or moving to 
uh, Salt Lake City, moving to Nashville, Tennessee, um, what are typically red counties versus yeah. where we're at right now. So I, I've seen that. And so I don't doubt that they come into contact through Amazon or through one of those big publishers and say, oh, yeah. there's this community out here. Maybe we should follow this. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 exactly, Peter. And I mean, it was really funny because recently a friend of mine who's a PCA pastor in Florida read read the book. And I was chatting to him briefly about it afterwards. And he said, you know, before, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said before it, he hadn't really thought too much about this. Yeah. But the, the day after he finished it, somebody from his congregation came and said to him, we're moving to Moscow. Huh. <laughs> yeah. that, that, was, that was kind of funny. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... I mean, I enjoyed the book. I know Nick enjoyed it. We've we've already given it to a couple of people, um, gifted. Tell, and- tell them to buy their own, Peter. It needs, it needs to be bought. <laughs> I bought a copy for some. Yeah, he bought it and gifted it. Yeah, so we'll let them know to to buy it. Well, uh, to to buy multiple cases of it uh, and then give it away to their to their friends. But I mean, it was an enjoyable book, and I think it introduced both of us to a side of not that's not saying bad side, but just different side of Idaho than that, that both of us knew, and I think especially Nick. Um, but that was. That, that was super interesting. Um, I would say too, um, I think we'd all three agree that if, if we find anything we disagree with this particular group or like with any group within Christianity, uh, respond in grace, you know, like we don't need to um, have a lot of infighting, but yeah, still responding grace for it. It's very likely we're still brothers and sisters in Christ and we just have some different views on things. So if you come across people that um, are part of this movement, just uh, responding grace. If you disagree on something, that's probably what I would reply with a, a call to action. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 the Napart churches have obviously produced reports on some yeah. of the ideas that are being produced here that, that, that they would see as being very, very serious issues. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so it, 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 I think that, that there, are definitely, there are definitely things that anyone can look at here and be helped by, encouraged by, provoked by, challenged by, and inspired to do better by as a reformed even in the broadest sense of the word, yeah. uh, as, 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 as a reformed Christian. Yeah, totally. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right, Nick. I didn't write the book as a can to call out anything. Yeah, yeah, I didn't feel like um, that. I think, I mean, other people have done that. Christians have done that. Um, Non-Christians have done that. They, they look at this and they think, you know, they write sometimes hysterical prose. I mean, obviously, the, any movement has its pros and cons. And it's a matter of Christian judgment, I think, to work out how seriously um, the pros are pros and how seriously the cons are cons, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, I agree. That's, and I think it was, it was laid out, um, I think, as objectively as possible. Obviously, there's still some judgment calls here and there, but it's, it was an objective look based off interviews and, and understanding that. So kind of wrapping this stuff up. So after people read this or if they're interested in some of this stuff or some of your other work, do you have any other projects after this that are coming out people can look forward to? I do, Peter. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I've got a book coming out, I think, in August in the UK, I think a little bit later in America, called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. Huh. So to- totally different, but it's a long history of Christianity in Ireland. Um, Nick, you're not going to tell me you grew up in Ireland as well, are you? <laughs> I am part Irish. He is Irish. Yeah, yeah. I knew it. I, I could. I could tell. It's your eyebrows give it away. Um, but um, 
but th- this is a book that that goes really from the arrival of St Patrick to to the present day, ba- oh. basically to to, to to last month. Yeah. So it, it describes, in some ways, it's a little book, but uh, a little bit like the last book because it describes the rise and fall of a broadly conceived Christian civilization, hmm. and also asks questions about what happens after a Christian civilization. Hmm. So in some ways, the book about the Pacific Northwest and the book about Ireland are both asking the same questions, but in very different geographical hmm. um, situations and also yeah. cultural um, yeah. c- uh, cultural situations too. Hmm. Yeah, and you talk a little bit well, about... Thanks for asking, Peter. Yeah, you talk a little bit about uh, an Irish community within mm-hmm. the book too. There's a, there's a little section on it as well. So if people... Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, and in the in the conclusion, I'm just wondering, could could this ever be replicated anywhere else? And I say more or less that if it could be replicated anywhere else, it would be in Northern Ireland, (laughs) uh, where I live. Yeah, Um, um, which is possibly even more conservative Hmm. uh, than it makes your right wing look a bit kind of pallid, pale, (laughs) discolored, yeah, faltering. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got the real stuff here. Red meat, right wing stuff. <laughs> I like it. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for thanks for talking about your book and wetting the palate. And uh, I'm hoping people read this and, and interact with it critically in the sense that they, they see the ideas and understand the movement and, and, and have a good sense of what this is and how they're going to respond to it. So thanks for coming on and talk about your book. Thanks, Peter. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Lovely to meet you both. You too. Thank you so much. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.